Essay 7 from Squirrels and Other Fur Bearers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Squirrels and Other Fur Bearers by John Burroughs. Essay 7 The Fox. It has been many a long day since I heard a fox bark, but in my youth among the Catskills I often heard the sound especially of a still moonlight night in midwinter. Perhaps it was more a cry than a bark, not continuous like the baying of a dog, but uttered at intervals. One feels that the creature is trying to bark, but has not yet learned the trick of it. But it is a wild, weird sound. I would get up any night to hear it again. I used to listen for it when a boy, standing in front of my father's house, Presently I would hear one way up on the shoulder of the mountain, and I imagined I could almost see him sitting there in his furs upon the illuminated surface and looking down in my direction. As I listened, maybe one would answer him from behind the woods in the valley, a fitting sound amidst the ghostly winter hills. The red fox was the only species that abounded in this locality. On my way to school in the morning, after a fresh fall of snow, I would see at many points where he had crossed the road. Here he had leisurely passed within rifle range of the house, evidently reconnoitering the premises with an eye to the hen-roost. That clear, sharp track, there was no mistaking it for the clumsy footprint of a little dog. All his wildness and agility were photographed in it. Here he had taken fright, or suddenly recollected an engagement, and in long graceful leaps, barely touching the fence, had gone careering up the hill as fleet as the wind. The usual gait of the fox, unlike that of the dog, is, at night at least, a walk. On such occasions he is in quest of game, and he goes through the woods and fields in an alert, stealthy manner, stepping about a foot at a time, and keeping his eyes and ears open. The wild, buoyant creature, how beautiful he is! I had often seen his dead carcass, and at a distance had witnessed the hounds drive him across the upper fields. But the thrill and excitement of meeting him in the wild freedom in the woods were unknown to me till, one cold winter day, drawn thither by the baying of a hound, I stood near the summit of the mountain, waiting a renewal of the sound, and I might determine the course of the dog and choose my position, stimulated by the ambition of all young nimrods to bag some notable game. Long I waited, and patiently, till chilled and benumbed I was about to turn back, when hearing a slight noise, I looked up and beheld a most superb fox, loping along with inimitable grace and ease, evidently disturbed, but not pursued by the hound, and so absorbed in his private meditations that he failed to see me, though I stood transfixed with amazement and admiration, not ten yards distant. I took his measure at a glance, a large male with dark legs and massive tail tipped with white a most magnificent creature, but so astonished and fascinated was I by this sudden appearance and matchless beauty, that not till I had caught the last glimpse of him, as he disappeared over a knoll, did I awake to my duty as a sportsman, and realized what an opportunity to distinguish myself I had unconsciously let slip. I clutched my gun, half angrily, as if it was to blame, and went home out of humor with myself and all fox kind but I have since thought better of the experience, and concluded that I bagged the game after all, the best part of it, and fleeced Reynard of something more valuable than his fur, without his knowledge. 
This is thoroughly a winter sound, this voice of the hound upon the mountain, and one that is music to my ears. The long trumpet-like bay, heard for a mile or more, now faintly back to the deep recesses of the mountain, now distinct, but still faint, as the hound comes over some prominent point and the wind favors, anon entirely lost in the gully, then breaking out again much nearer, and growing more and more pronounced as the dog approaches, till when he comes around the brow of the mountain, directly above you, the barking is loud and sharp. On he goes along the northern spur, his voice rising and sinking as the wind and the lay of the ground modify it, till lost to hearing. The fox usually keeps half a mile ahead, regulating his speed by that of the hound, occasionally pausing a moment to divert himself with a mouse or to contemplate the landscape, or to listen for his partner. If the hound press him too closely, he leads off from mountain to mountain, and so generally escapes the hunter. But if the pursuit be slow, he plays about some ridge or peak, and falls a prey, though not an easy one, to the experienced sportsman. A most spirited and exciting chase occurs when the farm dog gets close upon one in the open field, as sometimes happens in the early morning. The fox relies so confidently upon his superior speed that I imagine he half tempts the dog to the race. But if the dog be a smart one, and their course lies downhill, over smooth ground, Reynard must put his best foot forward, and then sometimes suffer the ignominy of being run over by his pursuer who, however, is quite unable to pick him up, owing to the speed. But when they mount the hill or enter the woods, the superior nimbleness and agility of the fox tell at once, and he easily leaves the dog far in his rear. For a cur less than his own size, he manifests little fear, especially if the two meet alone, remote from the house. In such cases I have seen first one turn tail, then the other. One of the most notable features of the fox is his large and massive tail. Seen running on the snow at a distance, his tail is quite as conspicuous as his body, and so far from appearing a burden, seems to contribute to his lightness and buoyancy. It softens the outlines of his movements, and repeats or continues to the eye, the ease, and poise of his carriage. But pursued by the hound on a wet, thawy day, it often becomes so heavy and bedraggled, as to prove a serious inconvenience, and compels him to take refuge in his den. He is very loath to do this. Both his pride and the traditions of his race stimulate him to run it out, and win by fair superiority of wind and speed, and only a wound or a heavy and moppish tail will drive him to avoid the issue in this manner. To learn his surpassing shrewdness and cunning, attempt to take him with a trap, rogue that he is he always suspects some trick and one must be more of a fox than he himself to overreach him at first sight it would appear easy enough with apparent indifference he crosses your path or walks in your footsteps in the field or travels along the beaten highway or lingers in the vicinity of stacks and remote barns carry the carcass of a pig or a fowl or a dog to a distant field in midwinter and in a few nights his tracks cover the snow about it. The inexperienced country youth, misled by this seeming carelessness of Renard, suddenly conceives a project to enrich himself with fur, and wonders that the idea has not occurred to him before, and to others. 
I knew a youthful yeoman of this kind, who imagined he had found a mine of wealth on discovering on a remote side-hill, between two woods, a dead porker, upon which appeared all the foxes of the neighborhood did nightly banquet. The clouds were burdened with snow, and as the first flakes commenced to eddy down, he set out, trap and broom in hand, already counting over in imagination the silver quarters he would receive for his first fox-skin. With the utmost care and with a palpitating heart, he removed enough of the trodden snow to allow the trap to sink below the surface. Then, carefully sifting the light element over it and sweeping his tracks full, he quickly withdrew, laughing exultingly over the little surprise he had prepared for the cunning rogue. The elements conspired to aid him, and the falling snow rapidly obliterated all vestiges of his work. The next morning at dawn he was on his way to bring in his fur. The snow had done its work effectually, and he believed had kept his secret well. Arrived in sight of the locality, he strained his vision to make out his prize lodged against the fence at the foot of the hill. Approaching nearer, the surface was unbroken, and doubt usurped the place of certainty in his mind. A little mound marked the site of the porker, but there was no footprint near it. Looking up the hill, he saw where Renard had walked leisurely down toward his wonted bacon, till within a few yards of it, when he had wheeled, and with prodigious strides disappeared in the woods. The young trapper saw at a glance what a comment this was upon his skill in the art, and indignantly exhuming the iron, he walked home with it, the stream of silver quarters suddenly setting in another direction. The successful trapper commences in the fall, or before the first deep snow. In a field not too remote, with an old axe, he cuts a small place, say ten inches by fourteen, in the frozen ground, and removes the earth to the depth of three or four inches, then fills the cavity with dry ashes, in which are placed bits of roasted cheese. Reynard is very suspicious at first, and gives the place a wide berth. It looks like design, and he will see how the thing behaves before he approaches too near but the cheese is savory, and the cold severe. He ventures a little closer every night, until he can reach and pick a piece from the surface. Emboldened by success, like other mortals, he presently digs freely among the ashes, and, finding a fresh supply of the delectable morsels every night, is soon thrown off his guard and his suspicions quite lulled. After a week of baiting in this manner, and on the even of a light fall of snow, the trapper carefully conceals his trap in the bed, first smoking it thoroughly with hemlock boughs to kill or neutralize all smell of the iron. If the weather favors and the proper precautions have been taken, he may succeed, though the chances are still greatly against him. Reynard is usually caught very lightly, seldom more than the ends of his toes being between the jaws. He sometimes works so cautiously as to spring the trap without injury, even to his toes, or may remove the cheese night after night without even springing it. I knew an old trapper who, on finding himself outwitted in this manner, tied a bit of cheese to the pan, and next morning had poor Reynard by the jaw. The trap is not fastened, but only encumbered with a clog, and is all the more sure in its hold by yielding to every effort of the animal to extricate himself. When Reynard sees his captor approaching, he would fain drop into a mouse-hole to render himself invisible. He crouches to the ground and remains perfectly motionless until he perceives himself discovered, 
when he makes one desperate and final effort to escape, but ceases all struggling as you come up, and behaves in a manner that stamps him a very timid warrior, cowering to the earth with a mingled look of shame, guilt, and humiliation. A young farmer told me of tracing one with his trap to the border of a wood, where he discovered the cunning rogue trying to hide by embracing a small tree. Most animals, when taken in a trap, show fight, but Reynard has more faith in the nimbleness of his feet than in the terror of his teeth. I once spent a summer month in a mountainous district in the state of New York, where, from its earliest settlement, the red fox had been the standing prize for skill in the use of the trap and gun. At the house where I was stopping were two foxhounds, and a neighbor half a mile distant had a third. There were many others in the township, and in season they were well employed too. But the three spoken of, attended by their owners, held high carnival on the mountains in the immediate vicinity, and many were the foxes that, winter after winter, fell before them, twenty-five having been shot, the season before my visit, on one small range alone. And yet the foxes were apparently never more abundant than they were that summer, and never bolder, coming at night within a few rods of the house, and of the unchained alert hounds, and making havoc among the poultry. One morning a large, fat goose was found minus her head and otherwise mangled. Both hounds had disappeared, and as they did not come back till near night, it was inferred that they had cut short Reynard's repast and given him a good chase into the bargain. But next night he was back again, and this time got safely off with the goose. A couple of nights after he must have come with recruits, for next morning three large goslings were reported missing. The silly geese now got it through their noodles that there was danger about, and every night thereafter came close up to the house to roost. A brood of turkeys, the old one tied to a tree a few rods to the rear of the house, were the next objects of the attack. The predacious rascal came, as usual, in the latter half of the night. I happened to be awake and heard the helpless turkey cry, Quit! Quit! with great emphasis. Another sleeper on the floor above me, who it seems had been sleeping with one ear awake for several nights, in apprehension for the safety of his turkeys, heard the sound also, and instantly divined its cause. I heard the window open, and a voice summon the dogs. A loud bellow was the response, which caused Reynard to make himself off in a hurry. A moment more, and the mother turkey would have shared the fate of the geese. There she lay at the end of her tether, with extended wings, bitten and rumpled. The younger ones roosted in a row on the fence nearby, and had taken flight on the first alarm. Turkeys retaining many of their wild instincts are less easily captured by the fox than any other of our domestic fowls. On the slightest show of danger they take to wing, and it is not unusual in the locality of which I speak to find them in the morning perched in the most unwonted places as on the peak of the barn or hay-shed, or on the tops of the apple-trees, their tails spread and their manners showing much excitement. Perchance one turkey is minus her tail, the fox having succeeded in getting only a mouthful of quills. As the brood grows and their wings develop, they wander far from the house in quest of grasshoppers. At such times they are all watchfulness and suspicion, crossing the fields one day, attended by a dog that much resembled a fox, I came suddenly upon a brood about one-third grown, which were feeding in a pasture just beyond a wood. 
It so happened that they caught sight of the dog, without seeing me, when instantly, with the celerity of wild game, they launched into the air, and while the old one perched upon a tree-top, as if to keep an eye on the supposed enemy, the young went sailing over the trees toward home. The two dogs before referred to, accompanied by a cur-dog, whose business it was to mind the farm, but who took as much delight in running away from the prosy duty as if he had been a schoolboy, would frequently steal off and have a good hunt all by themselves, just for the fun of a thing, I suppose. I more than half suspect that it was a kind of taunt or retaliation that Reynard came and took the geese from under their very noses. One morning they went off and stayed till the afternoon of the next day. They ran the fox all day and all night, the hounds baying at every jump, the cur-dog silent and tenacious. When the trio returned, they came dragging themselves along, stiff, foot-sore, gaunt, and hungry. For a day or two afterward they lay about the kennels, seeming to dread nothing so much as having to move. The stolen hunt was their spree, and, of course, they must take time to get over it. Some old hunters think the fox enjoys the chase as much as the hound, especially when the latter runs slowly, as the best hounds do. The fox will wait for the hound, will sit down and listen, or play about, crossing and recrossing and doubling upon his track, as if enjoying a mischievous conscientiousness of the perplexity he would presently cause his pursuer. It is evident, however, that the fox does not always have his share of the fun. Before a swift dog, or in a deep snow, or on a wet day, when his tail gets heavy, he must put his best foot forward. As a last resort he holds up. Sometimes he resorts to numerous devices to mislead and escape the dog altogether. He will walk in the bed of a small creek, or on a rail fence. I heard of an instance of a fox, hard and long-pressed, that took to a rail fence, and after walking some distance made a leap to one side to a hollow stump, in the cavity of which he snugly stowed himself. The ruse succeeded, and the dogs lost the trail. But the hunter, coming up, passed by chance near the stump, when out bounded the fox, his cunning availing him less than he deserved. On another occasion the fox took to the public road, and stepped with great care and precision into a sleigh-track. The hard-polished snow took no imprint of the light foot, and the scent was no doubt less than it would have been on a rougher surface. Maybe also the rogue had considered the chances of another sleigh coming along, before the hound, and obliterating the trail entirely. Audubon tells of a fox which, when started by the hounds, always managed to elude them at a certain point. Finally the hunter concealed himself in the locality, to discover, if possible, the trick. Presently along came the fox, and, making a leap to one side, ran up the trunk of a fallen tree which had lodged some feet from the ground, and concealed himself in the top. In a few minutes the hounds came up, and in their eagerness passed some distance beyond the point, and then went still farther, looking for the lost trail. Then the fox hastened down, and taking his back track, fooled the dogs completely. I was told of a silver-gray fox in northern New York, which, when pursued by the hounds, would run till it had hunted up another fox, or the fresh trail of one, when it would so maneuver that the hound would invariably be switched off on the second track. In cold, dry weather the fox will sometimes elude the hound, at least delay him much, by taking to a bare, ploughed field. 
the hard dry earth seems not to retain a particle of the scent, and the hound gives a loud, long, peculiar bark, to signify he has trouble. It is now his turn to show his wit, which he often does by passing completely around the field, and resuming the trail again where it crosses the fence or a strip of snow. The fact that any dry hard surface is unfavorable to the hound suggests, in a measure, the explanation of the wonderful faculty that all dogs, in a degree, possess of tracking an animal by the scent of the foot alone. Did you ever think why a dog's nose is always wet? Examine the nose of a foxhound, for instance. How very moist and sensitive! Cause this moisture to dry up, and the dog would be as powerless to track an animal as you are. The nose of the cat, you may observe, is but a little moist, and as you know, her sense of smell is far inferior to that of the dog. Moisten your own nostrils and lips, and the sense is plainly sharpened. The sweat of a dog's nose, therefore, is no doubt a vital element in its power, and without taking a very long logical stride, we now infer how a damp rough surface aids him in tracking game. A still hunt rarely brings you in sight of a fox, as his ears are much sharper than yours, and his tread much lighter. But if the fox is mousing in the fields, and you discover him before he does you, you may, the wind favoring, call him within a few paces of you. Secrete yourself behind the fence, or some other object, and squeak as nearly like a mouse as possible. Reynard will hear the sound at an incredible distance. Pricking up his ears, he gets the direction, and comes trotting along as unspiciously as can be. I have never had an opportunity to try the experiment, but I know perfectly reliable persons who have. One man in the pasture getting his cows called a fox which was too busy mousing to get the first sight, till it jumped upon the wall just over where he sat secreted. He then sprang up, giving a loud hoop at the same time and the fox, I suspect, came as near being frightened out of his skin as a fox ever was. I have never been able to see clearly why the mother fox generally selects a burrow or hole in the open field in which to have her young, except it be, as some hunters maintain, for better security. The young foxes are wont to come out on a warm day, and play like puppies in front of the den the view being obstructed on all sides by trees or bushes, in the cover of which danger might approach. They are less liable to surprise and capture. On the slightest sound they disappear in the hole. Those who have watched the gambols of the young foxes speak of them as very amusing, even more arch and playful than those of kittens, while a spirit profoundly wise and cunning seems to look out of their eyes. The parent fox can never be caught in the den with them, but is hovering near the woods, which are always at hand, and by her warning cry or bark telling them when to be on their guard. She usually has at least three dens, at no great distance apart, and moves stealthily in the night with her charge from one to the other, so as to mislead her enemies. Many a party of boys, and of men too, discovering the whereabouts of a litter, have gone with shovels and picks, and after digging away vigorously for several hours, have found only an empty hole for their pains. The old fox, finding her secret had been found out, had waited for darkness, in the cover of which to transfer her household to new quarters, or else some old fox-hunter, jealous of the preservation of his game, and getting word of the intended destruction of the litter, had gone at dusk the night before, and made some disturbance about the den, perhaps flashed some powder in its mouth, 
a hint which the shrewd animal knew how to interpret. The fox nearly always takes his nap during the day in the open fields, along the sides of the ridges or under the mountain, where he can look down upon the busy farms beneath and hear their many sounds, the barking of dogs, the lowing of cattle, the cackling of hens, the voices of men and boys, or the sound of travel upon the highway. It is on that side, too, that he keeps the sharpest lookout, and the appearance of the hunter above and behind him is always a surprise. Foxes, unlike wolves, never go in packs or companies, but hunt singly. Many of the ways and manners of the fox, when tamed, are like the dogs. I once saw a young red fox exposed for sale in the market in Washington. A colored man had him, and said he had caught him out in Virginia. He led him by a small chain, as he would a puppy, and the innocent young rascal would lie on his side and bask and sleep in the sunshine, amid all the noise and chaffering around him, precisely like a dog. He was about the size of a full-grown cat, and there was a bewitching beauty about him that I could hardly resist. On another occasion I saw a gray fox, about two-thirds grown, playing with a dog about the same size and by nothing in the manners of either could you tell which was the dog and which was the fox. End of Essay 7